0: Hello and welcome back. After the huge success of the mini-series on Queen Mary I, I invited back Dr. Johanna Strong, and she has brought to us another great topic. I hope you enjoy. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Welcome back to the Tudors Dynasty podcast mini-series on queenship. I am your host, Dr. Johanna Strong, and in this series, we are traveling through time and around the world to learn more about global queenship. On the episode today, I am joined by Annie Joseph, who's going to tell us all about the Begums of Bhopal and queenship in India. She's completing a PhD at the Institute of English at the University of Kerala, Working on gender and sovereignty in colonial India. And she is a Charles Wallace Fellow. Her research works to retrieve and recover the history of women in power in colonial India, which makes her a perfect guest for our mini series on global queenship. So, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited for our conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Strong, for inviting me over. Thank you. My pleasure. I guess let's dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit about you and what your PhD project is? Um, As you have already mentioned, I'm currently pursuing
1: my PhD at Institute of English, University of Kerala in India. So my PhD project uh, is an attempt to study Beacons of Popa a group of four queens who ruled a Muslim principality in colonial in India for four consecutive terms, that is a period spanning more than 100 years. I'm looking at the modalities of self-refashioning undertook by these queens to consolidate their position and power, and they claim to the throne of the Bhopal as the reigning vegans of the Bhopal, that is queens in their own right, not regions. Not acting on anyone's behalf, but queens in their own wives. And I'm more interested uh, in the strategies and policies employed by this beacons of Bhopal uh, to uh, to make this beacons of Bhopal happen and uh, uh, making uh, Bhopal the beacons. We call them Bhopal's beacons Bhopal. It's not anyone else Bhopal, it's beacons Bhopal. And it is it is these aspects of how these women uh, appreciated their ability uh, to do is what makes uh, my PhD project, yeah.
0: I think it's, it's always interesting. We were saying just before we hit record that it's, it's wonderful to be putting kind of these, these royal women and these powerful women back in that context, that they don't just appear out of nowhere. Um, and so that's a, a very exciting bit about your project is that context that's coming in. And so what got you interested in this this aspect of queenship and and female power, and especially looking at the Begums and at Noab Sikender Begum? So, uh, when I started
1: my research on the Beacons when I was uh, doing my info back in the 2018, my initial plan was not to look at uh, because I wasn't aware of the discipline of queenship and I should concede here that uh, uh, my con- my uh, knowledge of queens in colonial India was limited to uh, queens who asserted themselves in the form of military operations, like Rani Lakshmi Bai, Begum Hastad Mahalapavad, who had been extensively studied both uh, in uh, uh scholarly discourses as well as they are they are extensively represented in popular uh visual mediums there are multiple movies about them multiple novels about them and but but then i wasn't aware of a different kind of queens to follow a different line of strategy to um, uh to deal with uh, the overarching presence of british in colonial india or their their incursions into their sovereignty Um, No, like emphasizing the aspect of queenship or queens as a political category. uh, I never thought that uh, this emphasis or acknowledging that queens as a political category would actually in in an altered reading of their lives. So my plan was to study not queenship per se, but how both colonial and nationalist discourses uh, conceptualize, and represented women who were assertive and reacted against colonial incursions into their sovereignty. In, uh, that is when I happened to read books like *Lives of uh, Indian Princes*, Barbara Ramusak's *India's uh, Native Princes*, where I happened to read about those beacons of folk and I was like, "Who are they?" And I was like, "Why didn't I know them, ab- know about them before?" Why didn't I learn about them in my history classes? It was not just one beacon, it was four beacons in succession, rolling up Muslim principality for 100 years. And why were they erased out of their mainstream history? And uh, that is when my fascination with this beacon started. It was just genuine bewilderment. What are they? Why are they erased? I realized that the strategies used by the Bigam that is going to creatively employ the colonial discourses to their advantages were unprecedented in uh, Indian uh, history. The fact that four female rulers ruled in succession dispersed the stereotyped understanding of the queen's rule as unforeseen and a temporary arrangement. Still, they remained you know, in oblivion. What attracted me to the uh, Begums of Bhopal was not only the fact that they ruled a Muslim principality for 100 years, but a fateful oblivion to which they are relegated now. I asked myself why didn't I know about them before over and over again and it was this guilt in fact that I didn't know about this powerful women in Indian history before that actually led me to this research actually it was like uh, uh, doing justice to uh, my ignorance or uh, the collective ignorance about them and um, my research is an attempt to revive their legacy and uh, bring their memory back to mainstream history besides, Uh, why and how of uh, Beacon's 100-year-old emits the benevolent sexism of the colonial apparatus and the native gender code of performances it is a genuine bewilderment as I put it before Uh, uh, and how could they consistently perform and exercise public and official power not private and non-official power uh, to which Beacons are almost always you know relegated or associated with how could they do that was what attracted me to the vegans. And to, to talk about uh, uh, the discipline of queenship in general, what attracted me to queenship as a concept. Um, Rani, according to Harleen Singh, who um, uh, came up with a wonderful book on Rani Lakshmi of Chanzi, I caught is an elite colonial subject whose refusal to be restrained within the available paradigms of uh, necessi- necessitates a larger multi-level project of representation, neither entirely victim nor agent. The Rani is objectified by colonial and nationalist discourses to perpetuate socially, culturally, and politically viable modes of traditional femininity So even as Rani was used in various discourses and mediums to perpetuate certain ideas about desired feminine virtues, The lived experience of Vranis in colonial India tell a different story of subversion and transgressions. In my opinion, queens in colonial India were the most unregulated group among the Britain's colonial churches. Inaccessible for colonial gays because of the Senana system they were in, because Senana system is the women's apartment, the harem to which uh, they were constructed and no male was uh, allowed to go in. And it was guarded by eunuchs, and uh, they also followed purdah system, which means uh, they wore uh, a veil all throughout their life, uh, facilitating the fact that they can access the public. They have an access to the public, but there was no accessibility back, which was a very powerful equation. Even though you, we call it uh, a very, uh, you know backward kind of a habit, it has it's like party just Yeah. So along with this inaccessibility to them, there was also this uh, facet of uh, their intimate accessibility to their sovereign as mother, wife and the doctor, which we can otherwise call as chamber politics. So these are all the factors that makes Rani's very interesting and complex category in colonial India, who have not been addressed as an, uh, for their such, you know, interesting, um, intersectionary life they lead. That is what makes friendship very interesting for me. And colonial Indian setting adds very interesting uh, features and facets and nuances and notions to rani as a lived experience. In colonial India, there is no wonder that rani's were considered an evil influence on the era parents. So British uh, made it a point. Uh, to to separate their parents, especially the male children from their royal senana, as early as possible, because they thought that they are an evil influence. And when I was actually discussing this with one of my professors, she was suggesting that the kind were, they were they were called the uh, the uh, senana, where the women's quarters were. there were they were called places of uh, conspiracies. And when I was talking, uh, when I was uh, talking to one of my uh, professors and she was telling me this is not, you shouldn't call this conspiracy, it is insurgency, Senana insurgency against, you know, the British uh, discourse on uh, demonizing them. You know, uh, yeah, it was interesting. And to talk about my interest about in Nawab and Begum, it all started with uh, an anecdote uh, that is uh, narrated in shahriar Muhammad Khan's work, uh, where he says that NSB as a teenager was a very formidable, spirited woman, and. Uh, uh, her mother was the first to become of Bhopal and uh, mm-hmm. um, Lancelot Wilkinson was the then political agent of Bhopal state. All princely uh, state was assigned a political agent who will report affairs of the state uh, to the central agencies. Yes. So, Lancelot Wickenson was the political agent and he was kind of had a very strained relationship with the victims, and he didn't quite follow the kind of spatial boundaries he should have. And in public one day, um, this uh, political agent touched the becomes earrings. That means crossing the uh, physical boundary in a way that is offending and insulting to the heir apparent of purpose. And what she did was she had administered a public slap to the British political agent. Um, and this kind of narration, this, this event anecdote, actually changed my perspective about Muslim women or the discourses about Muslim women that they're submissive, they're inaccessible and they're unresponsive and it is the ability of them, or the possibility that they are asserted themselves, or so reacted to their uh, incursions into not only their say, sovereignty but also their personal space, which uh, had attracted me to Nawab Sikandar Viva. However, silly this this uh, and, uh, this may sound, this was what uh, you know get, uh, started uh, beginning to uh, this was how Sikander began beginning to grow on me, and I was wondering who was he. Oh my God! Who was she? I should learn about her. Yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. I think you've you've brought up so many of the themes of queenship, and really these themes of empire as well, and there's these themes of power. Of we often have these Western European views on what makes a woman powerful, and there's often this perception that that things like the harems and where women are separated it's this trying to control them when in fact as you say women hold the power in that situation and how incredible just the the imagery of the veil that they can see everything but no one can see them that's just such a a powerful image there of You know, the the public doesn't have the power in that circumstance. It's the veiled woman. And I think that's one of the the things that I absolutely love about history in general is these moments, as you say, why are we not getting more of these figures? You know, why are these four incredible queens not something we're shouting about? And just the, the fact, I think, most women listening can relate that moment when someone just gets a little too close and you just want to go like please back up. You are too close for comfort. And just like talk about an empowering moment. It's incredible. Like mean, that's one of my new favorite history moments. <laughs> no it I idea, know it I idea. so good. <laughs> and so it's amazing how kind of these these one-off moments where we happen to read something or happen to hear something. And it puts us down this rabbit hole and this kind of different path than we thought we were going to take. But then it it grows into this incredible field of research. And I'm sure, like me, many of our listeners will not have heard of the Begums before this, or may have heard of, but don't know times. And so can you give us kind of a, a brief history now that we've kind of met them in their context, who are the Begums and kind of why are they important? Um, and especially of Nawab Um, Who is she? What, what does she do? So, um, uh, the Beacons of Bhopal
1: ruled from a period from 1890 to 1925, years. And this period was of great significance to Indian history as well as colonial apparatus in India. So um, this uh, Bhopal was not a very ancient kingdom or a state or something. It was a Mughal successor state, uh, by which uh, what it means is that it is a state that was formed at the event of uh, the decline of Mughal power after the death of the great Mughal emperor, Aurangzeb, So there was a decentralization happening. There was no uh, powerful Mughal ruler at the center. So all the Mughal governors and the mercenaries began to look for themselves and they them, wish they could build into a state. And that's how Bhopal came into being in the, first decades of uh, the 18th century. So uh, it's found that those Muhammad Han was a, a mercenary from Afghanistan. And when uh, he started forming a state of his own, getting something from this state, getting something from the other state, he was carving a state of his own. He asked his kinsmen to come down to Bhopal, which was a very fertile area, which is the Bhopal is Bhopal is in central India. And it's at the crossroads of every important uh, empires and it's a very important place actually so he asked the people to come, come here and uh, that started the Popal state and it was, uh, it was uh, given legitimacy by the distant Mughal Empire by uh, Dost giving annual tributes to them and uh, there was also a very um, good relationship with uh, the British as well but they were not a significant power uh, back in the time when Dost was uh, designing and making and uh, uh, putting Bhopal into a reality. well, if the state was formed by the great and craftiness of those. It was sustained by a policies of its queen consorts uh, to the beacons of Popal. One of the interesting feature of the uh, Popal state is that uh, it was consistently being uh, uh, ruled by, not ruled, consistently seen Uh, female uh, royal women, that's in the form of uh, sisters or uh, uh, queen consorts, uh, calling shots or um, in the focal points of administration, which means that the Bhopali subjects, right from its inception, was not uh, unfamiliar with the concept of women calling shots, women holding the power. It was just that they were not, uh, quite familiar with the instance of women becoming sovereign beacons, so ruling in their own right, that is official in, in the capacities of official beacons. But it was the this coincidental tradition itself, I think, that empowered uh, uh, generation after generation, royal women in this dynasty, in the Bhopal dynasty, uh, to become uh, sovereign beacons of Bhopal. So, uh, for instance, uh, uh, when you look at the history of the state, uh, as I told you before, it is it is this uh, uh, instance of women ruling or ruling on behalf of the uh, ruling monarch uh, dispels our idea about Muslim backwardness. Or backwardness of women in Muslim religion and society. And for me, what Bhopal, how Bhopal worked was it was kind of um, deconstructing all the stereotyped ideas I had about the Bhopal. So in um, 1890, that's when the begins of Bhopal's era started. An unfortunate event happened. It was the death of the young Nawab of Bhopal who was uh, Sikhandar Vikram's father and the first Vikram of Bhopal, Kutsia becomes husband. He was shot dead by uh, his uh, eight-year-old nephew, which was considered to be an uh, accident actually. It was like, I don't know, uh, there is still controversy, It's says debates happening on whether it was orchestrated or whether it was an accident. Nevertheless, he was dead. Which, though unfortunately, led to 100 years of rule of the Beacons. And if you ask me why 100 years, it could have entered in 20 years of rule and could have passed in any other male years. That is where the interesting thing all happened. Um, yeah, so Kutsia Beacon was a very formidable wife, uh, Beacon, who who on the day of her husband's funeral, as recorded in a couple of books, uh, came out of the way, came out of pada and addressed a collective of uh, ulema, which is the Muslim authority which gives legitimacy for a, a Muslim ruler to And the British uh, um, assembled there uh, saying that. The throne should pass to me, I should be the regent on behalf of my uh, minor doctor who was only one and a half years old back then. And uh, when you look back, I really don't know what she correctly, you know, said were back into convince these patriarchal people to let her have the throne. But uh, records say that she cited instances from uh, Islamic history where there were instances where women ruled or uh, in the case of uh, uh, the Prophet's doctor, Prophet's wife, Aisha, uh, and uh, even she cited the case of British queens ruling like Elizabeth, and it was where the the global queenship rituals come into play. You know how the colonial empire began to uh, the colonial discourse began to backfire on the British as well. You know, you have a queen, why not be? I can uh, I can become a queen. You know, yeah, it's a very interesting part. And somehow people were convinced, and she was become uh, she became the regent of Nepal on behalf of her minor Dr. Sikandar Begum, And she ruled for uh, 17 years, until 1837. In 1837, Sikandar was married to her cousin, Jahangir Khan, and the uh, uh, pact was to uh, transfer the crown to hus- uh, Nawab Sikandar Begum's husband upon her marriage. And um, then you see that it wasn't so feminist after all. It, we, you know, you see the familiar thing happening but, you know, uh, that is when uh, you have to put the spotlight on Nawab Begum, who was very, very competent ruler and who knew that I am a better ruler than anybody that Baupal can have. And she was a person who was constantly uh, trying to arrest power and Jahangir was aware of this. Jahangir was not a very effective ruler. Though he didn't make much of a fuss, he was not a good roller. So, Sikandha Begum had a very difficult relationship with her husband. He tried to kill her. There was several bad uh, chapter as far well as uh, their marriage is concerned. But eventually he died and that is her software something. in. She didn't assault him. She waited. She knew that with his lifestyle, he's going to die anyway. I'm going to get the throne anyway. And that is what make her, you know, perfect queen, I would say. It was in the military aggression. Yes. And uh, she then convinced uh, that um, she had a doctor by that. And it was uh, interestingly, for three generations, Bhopali begums didn't have the ability to produce males. Fortunately, we have the history of Begums of Bhopal. She again had a doctor, only a doctor. And she uh, asked the British uh, to make her the regent on behalf of uh, her doctor, Shah Jahan Begum, which the British agreed to. And then began uh, the golden era in uh, the history of Bhopal. And she was the most competent ruler Bhopal had ever seen and the future ruler, future becomes have tried to mold a second, Sikandar out of every single heir apparent they have. She's very uh, masculine. I don't know whether it's a good thing to say as we have progressed along the lines of critical theories, we know that assuming a very masculine thing is not a very, uh, you know, price worthy thing. But then she exuded certain kinds of qualities that made the British, uh, uh, you know, speechless. They couldn't raise any kind of uh, uh, complaints against her. And she ruled for uh, uh, from 1848 to 1868. And what makes her the most interesting queen is that her uh, vision for Bhopal's women, or royal women, exceeded beyond her own reign. Okay. It wasn't just the uh, fact that she wanted to become the reigning monarch, or she wanted to become the queen. She wanted women of her, the successive generation to become queens in their own right as well. It is this feminist tendency would makes Nawazuddin become the my favorite become among uh, the beacons of Thopal. And she uh, after uh, becoming the regent, she first uh, uh, asked the British to make her life give her lifelong regency, citing so that after she was heir apparent, since she is alive. It's not it's not right for her doctor to take over her, and uh, also asked for uh, the introduction of the office of non-executive consort, which means that her husband, her doctor's husband, will never ever you know get the throne. It will be Shah Jahan herself who becomes the reigning queen. And after that, her on Dr. Sultan Jahan, Begum, And it was this far sight. And it was again uh she uh, she uh convinced British by using uh presidents of Queen Victoria becoming uh um the queen, why if, as I mentioned before, if she can why can't us? Yeah. And uh she and she also made uh, it a point to at times, you know, uh at times criticize even even it's even it's very uh, uh uh in a soft manner though to 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 uh point out the double standards of british uh colonial enterprise and their emancipation of women their the policy of emancipation of women And yeah, that's the, I I know I'm taking a bit longer time than uh, to narrate this. Uh, Yeah. So, NSP came into power in 1844 and uh, she became queen in 1868. And one of the spectacular features of NSP is that she had started the tradition of history writing or life writing uh, in the uh, Bhopal dynasty and she knew that it was important. Otherwise, everyone will conveniently ignore them or uh, um, forget them and it was she who started this tradition and it was this tradition that was religiously uh mm-hmm. followed by her two successors Shah Jahan Begum and Sultan Jahan Begum. Shah Jahan Begum, her the nest uh Bikham was uh, uh, of a different kind of a different uh, uh kind than the two preceding Begums. Her, her, she was the longest in Begums, ruled for 33 years, and uh, she ruled in 1901. And uh, she was more of a very feminine kind of a person, if I can call that so, very, uh, very uh, epicurean and uh, very uh, much a part patron of literature, arts, and festivals. And her era was actually, she was con, uh, certain controversies and candles because uh, she didn't quite follow uh, Islamic courts, neither Islamic courts or British courts of property for a queen. She, was, she kind of exercised her agency in a manner different from that of her predecessors. I think that comes from the kind of uh, uh, liberty, kind of uh, uh, privileged position into which uh, both the preceding begums have put her. Now she has the ability to to, uh, live in a manner that she likes. The other begums had to kind of continuously uh, be cautious of how they are carrying themselves because. Uh, They had this immense task of normalizing and legitimizing demons rule. But on the other hand, Shah Jahan Begum um, harvested the fruit of all that I would rather say. And the third begum, Sultan Jahan Begum was last reigning begum of Bhopal. and she was a very progressive woman. Uh, um, all of the begums uh, patronized uh, were pa- patrons of colonial modern uh, projects like uh, secular infrastructures like hospitals, colleges, uh, railway transport systems. So was uh, now Sultan Jahan Begum, and her uh, her era. Uh, oh, her reign is uh, spectacular or is it's um, quite uh, unique for the kind of uh, travels the she undertook to the europe and uh, the effect it had on her own perspective of women's position her own perspective of the relationship between the colonial empire uh, the colonial the imperial center and the colonial empire and yes and the last thing she did was to secure um succession or uh, uh the throne of bhopal to her last uh her youngest uh son uh in the presence of her uh eldest son's son and two eldest elder sons were already passed away so she wanted to secure the throne for uh herself and for that she traveled all the way to britain to convince uh, King George uh, that, okay, we want to uh, get this done. And on surpassing uh, the protocol that uh, the Viceroy in India has already ruled against her wishes, but she took uh, the long journey to England to to prove a point that she is still calling shots. Yeah, and yes, uh, that is about the of Bhopal in a natural and uh, to uh, to um, conclude that Biham, uh, Sultan Jahan Begum wanted to strike off male primogenizer and to bring in non-gendered primogenizer and uh, that is her last, I would say, seminal action as well as uh, Muslim sovereign a female sovereign in the Muslim state was good
0: yes. Wow. That's, I mean, what a history that there's so much happening, and yet why Why is this not kind of front and center? Um, and it's, it's amazing to see kind of the, the similarities with kind of queenship that our listeners might be more familiar with, of this idea that you have to legitimize your place on the throne in a sense. And so you've you've talked a little bit about kind of pulling in these precedents and and then being able to say, you know, well, my family's already done it, or this other person's already done it. So why can't I? And so just wondering if you could maybe say a few more words on how the Begums really legitimize their place and legitimize their power.
1: So, uh, legitimizing uh, their rule was crucial to their aim because they were Muslim rulers in a Muslim principality with no such history of precedence. So, it was important for them uh, uh, to uh, convince not only their subjects or uh, the ulema, the Islamic ulema, but also the British of their legitimacy to rule. And that is when, as I have mentioned below, their creative employment of colonial law and global queenship traditions come into play. Um, so, as I have already mentioned, Nawab and the has used to very creatively colonial law, the, the, the terms in the treaties to to uh, shift to the wind in her direction. Uh, like saying that uh, since she is their parent. As long as she is alive, she remains the heir apparent. And she kind of pointed out the loopholes in the colonial law, and uh, you know, uh, brought it against them. And the British were speechless. And it was the first time in history that British had to actually change a uh, public the, uh, decision that they made in public and it was such I an mean, important event in the history of, uh, you know, uh, uh, women's, uh, women's history in colonial India, or history of uh, Indian princes in uh, uh, colonial India, so to speak. But uh, I don't know, uh, maybe it is a fact that uh an emerging Hindu nationalism we didn't want to kind of talk more about the agency of a Muslim woman uh that we conveniently ignored them or it can also be a concerted effort on the part of the uh, later nationalist movement to actually picture Indian princes as uh um an anachronism of the past who wear just uh very submissive uh, uh, active when uh, the colonial, colonial colonialism happened. So, the other methods uh, being showing competency as a, ruled, a ruler. So, the other method for uh, the British uh, regularly inspected the competency of uh, Indian princes and it was a You cannot really call them, in in the current sense of the term, if you call them princes, they were not all free. They had to constantly, you know, uh, uh, show their British masters that they have uh, the ability to remain on power. And uh, they are doing whatever in their power to improve the situation of their subjects. And that was done through exposing what competency meant in colonial era, that is, supporting uh, modernity projects like infrastructural uh, activities like uh, hospitals, education, and all kinds of things, uh, importing science and uh, technology and all kinds of things they thought was modern. And the other method in which uh, the becomes uh, showed their competency and and uh, not competency per se but tried to, to legitimize their power through uh showing public piety towards islamic creeds. The fact that they uh, are living uh, in an era where uh, the British is the overarching power, doesn't means that they can completely ignore where the divine power to rule comes from. It is from Allah. And they have to constantly uh, convince the ulema that they are devote Muslims. And that is when very interesting things about uh, uh, because of Popal happen. They have uh, Nawab Sikandar become the first ever Muslim ruler to Visit uh, Mecca to go on a pilgrimage to Mecca at that point in time. Uh, visiting Mecca was a very dangerous thing, it took time, first of all, and secondly, there were so many uh plagues and pestilences happening, and the chances of the ruler getting back to their principality safe and found to rule was uh, very minimal. So, no ruler, Muslim ruler, right from Akbar the Great to that of Arangasit never visited Mecca, did a pilgrimage. It was the prerogative of the royal women um, to do that. So, but when she and undertook this journey, it was not as a royal woman from a Muslim royal household, it was as a sovereign become of Popat. And she was risking it all to, to, to visit the Mecca. And that was a response to her, to her uh, Islamic subjects, because it was very, it was a very uh, planned event because she supported the British in 1857 revolution, the first war of independence, which was considered a Mohammedan conspiracy by the British. You know, the titular head was the Bahadur Shah and uh, even her mother and all the uh, Islamic uh, Her clerks and uh, Maulavis all wanted her to support the Mughal cause and not give any kind of support to uh, the British. But uh, she was quite a visionary. She was, she supported the British, and of course, the British was the one who came out victorious. But then, since the British came out victorious, she she then had uh, the uh, duty to show her obedience to uh, the islamic creed to her religion saying that she is not an infidel and that is why she uh, she uh, went to the Mile to do all this she even went to the extreme of visiting a juma masjid in delhi which was converted to a stable by the british to insult uh, 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 to, to give punishment to the idea that it was a muhammadan conspiracy after everything, you know, uh, was subsided, she went to the Jama Masjid. She has cleaned the clothes and opened the uh, mosque again for worship. And this was her strategy, I would rather say, rather than her divorce nature, because she was a very strategic, very, very, very clever ruler who knew how to play both the religious card and the card as the imperial subject. Yes, um, and yeah, I think um, the immense task of the uh, legitimization fell on uh, Kudziya Begum, the first Begum and Nawab Sikandar Begum. Uh, as it is evident, uh, it was they, it was in fact Nawab Sikandar Begum with her past assignments right, of installing two future generations also as sovereign Begums in their own right, which uh, made the, uh becomes of yeah. otherwise these two queens would have been relegated as of uh, you know some temporary uh, uh, temporary unforeseen thing that happened, and we could have easily glossed over them we could have easily overlooked them It was in the become with her uh, father she had she thought that it should be made into a law the succession should be, you know, should be concrete and should be written on a paper that, okay, this uh, uh, throne will pass to Shah Jahan, her doctor, and then to uh, her grand doctor, Sultan Jahan Bika. And I think it course, when you think about how they legitimize their own, so very fascinating, it's, there's more to it, but it's just uh, the, you know, uh, uh, they are, so Togging
0: it to my show yeah yeah it's it's incredible to see i think this this really brings us nicely to the the next thing I wanted to ask is these ideas of piety and the laws and the really outward appearance of power is something that is very similar, i think between European queens and the Begums that you've talked about so far. And so I think our, our listeners might be more familiar with these ideas of of Western European queenship. And so we've seen some of the similarities, I think. But what are some of the maybe big similarities and, and differences between, we'll say, European queenship and India and the the begums? Well, I will first start with the
1: similarities. Uh, Indian kingship, as in European kingship, although at times performed corporate monarchy, uh, the hierarchy existed between the genders, that is between the king and the queen, was quite pronounced throughout its history as in Europe. In ancient Indian courts on kingship, women were not entertained as rulers, as in many tests on European kingship, Literature, and as in the first blast of the trumpet, against against monstrous regiment of women by John Knox, that it is against Bible. So we see that kind of you know uh, slight mention that women's role is unnatural in certain kinship-related codes and conduct in Indian uh, literature as well. <clears throat> Nevertheless, various Indian kingdoms saw the rule of uh, uh, queens at various points in time as in Europe. It was not a rare thing, it happened. And as you mentioned, uh, public piety, pilgrimages, and patronages of religious institutions was very much part of the Indian queenship of choice. And an official nature of uh, queens' power was uh, a similarity I found. I can I find between European queenship and Indian queenship, and and of course using marriage as a as a feature that you find in both the cases. But to come to the difference is what makes I think the queenship quite interesting. The first major difference is the uh, diversity. Of uh, Indian queenship rituals because there were so many religions, so many religious practices, so many cultures that went into making different kinds of queenship rituals in different states. If I'm taking in colonial India as a case in point, there are 564 princely states, 564 princely states uh, uh, in colonial India. And this five Princely state may have uh, some kind of uh, similar uniform uniform co- codes as in the, you know, many of them were the Chiput states, which uh, may had a similar queen rituals. Many of them were Maratha states, which may have a similar code of conduct. Many of them were uh, states from down south, which had a very interesting uh, queen ritual. And the overarching um, connection, overarching factor that connects all these states were the British paramount vessels. Even though the British paramountity was trying to homogenize kinship rituals, just like they were trying to homogenize religion, it was the British who brought in uh, the idea of Hinduism as we see it today, actually, through their senses. Uh, The gender codes, they tried to kind of make sense of what India is through homogenizing gender along the lines of the British conceptions of gender. So was there? uh, They were trying to homogenise kinship riches too, because it was varied across uh, Indian subcontinent. For instance, if you, uh, you, I, uh, if you, I don't know whether you have heard of this uh, Travancore. If if India was still under the colonial uh, princely rule, I would have been a subject of the Travancore king. Travancore is a state, uh, is a colonial princely state, and Travancore. And the state in Kerala, where I'm coming from, followed matrilineal succession, which meant the family of the king constituted not of his wife, but of the king from the king to the king's sister's um, sons. In the absence of a male heir, uh, the king's sister has become uh, the sovereign uh, queen of the state, and there were no problem with that. And when the British came, they found it quite conflicting. How can women become sovereign queens in their own right? It must be really, really, there might be some kind of problem with them. And, uh, when, uh, in, uh, during the, uh, eve of colonial war, uh, the, Shavangur queens, who otherwise should have considered regnant queens, were only given the position of regnant queens. I'm sorry, regent queens. They were demoted to the position of uh, regency. And this kind of colonial interventions can be found across 564 princely states in different manner. But what again attracts me to the of Bhopal, where in such uh kingdoms where there was strong tradition and precedence of women becoming queens and the british altered it uh, topsy-turvy you know turned it topsy-turvy here is uh here are a group of four beacons enjoying all the benefits of being sovereign because yeah so uh that is one difference that is this uh incursions from a colonial power in a manner which was unprecedented in European queenship history as well as the diversity that forms Indian queenship. We don't have an Indian, you cannot call someone an Indian queen. It should go into details. You should call her either, either a Rajput queen or Maratha queen or a Travancore queen. You have to go into a detail, right? otherwise she is incomplete. And uh, the second uh, uh, differences, uh, the possibility of interreligious marriages, which I think was absent in European culture. It, it has to be questioned, right? Here, uh, yeah, yeah, if national uh, international uh, marriages were allowed, but interreligious were never allowed, I assume. And um, interreligious marriages were um, conducted uh, to form alliances or consolidate alliances, right from uh, after uh, Akbar the Great uh, to that of Dos Muhammad Khan, the founder of Bhopal State. Uh, one of the wives of Dos Muhammad Khan was a Rajput uh, girl. Rajput is a noble family, Hindu noble family uh, and uh, her name was Fateh Bibi and she was the most uh, important figure in the formation of Popal State. She was very important. She was the beloved wife and principal wife of those Muhammad Khan. And it was after her, the ensign of the Popal State is named, Fateh Nishma. So that kind of a, a possibility was there, where, you know, uh, people married into different religions and uh, uh, that kind of also ensured a kind of harmony between religions. Seeing a Hindu queen, most often, um, Muslim uh, states were formed amidst uh, Hindu population. So, seeing a Hindu queen was important for their subjects to to see that their culture or the their ways of life will be represented uh, by a premier woman. Uh, to their chief of the state. Yeah, that is there. That I think is a very wonderful difference between uh, Indian queenship and European queenship. And another important facet is queen's role was officially unofficial. By which, what I mean is that. Um, Talking from my limited foray into coronation rituals in India, I've never seen uh, any record of a queen consort being installed as queen consort, a coronation ceremony for the queen consort. So it, to, the, the power, the agency that was held by the queen was definitely unofficial. And um, given the polygamous nature of the Indian courts, the status of the Maharani The uh, Maharani means the great queen or the the principal queen was also in a flex. Uh, Unlike in Europe, where there was only installed queen for the realm, in India, there were a Maharani, Senior Ranis, Junior Ranis, and even the congubines stood a chance to becoming the premier woman of the realm maharani status can be dependent on either he, uh, her ability to keep the dynasty in male heir or in the presence of many ranis and many male heirs the favorite ranis child became the heir so the maharani the the, the the very position of maharani was a very very insecure insecure position so to speak unlike that in european queenship and there was obviously the Sanana and pardas as I mentioned below, mentioned uh, before and then there is this uh, um, very famous uh, custom infamous, uh, in famous if I may study uh, which uh, was widow immolation, that is, once her husband dies, she was supposed to self- immolate in the funeral pyre of her husband. Which are definitely I'm um, quite positive was not there in Europe. So I think these are some points of difference between Indian queenship and European queenship. Yes.
0: Yeah. And it's as you say, it's it's amazing to see how very independently we get these these women using kind of the same sorts of power and seeing those similarities that that grow as a result of the position but then these big differences because kind of what what we now would call India is not what they would recognize and that it's such a a different context and so obviously power has to reflect that context and as you were saying about kind of the the interreligious marriages I was thinking, yeah, the, the big thing, especially in England, is the the quote-unquote horror of a Protestant monarch marrying a Catholic, but they're still both Christians, as you say. And so this, this idea of an English monarch marrying a Muslim or marrying a Hindu is just kind of completely unthought of. And... I think that's in- incredibly interesting how that brings a sense of stability when there is this sense that oh, I might not be the same religion as the main ruler, but I I do have this connection with someone else. I think that's what a what a dynastic kind of peace move in order to stabilize rule. Oh, I learned so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: and a related note: the British used to have uh, very serious reservations about Indian princes marrying English women. Uh, you know, uh, you know there were like a uh, there were like a Karnataka prince, if I am not wrong, uh, who wanted to marry an English or Australian woman who goes by the name Molly and there was like satirical pieces of oh my god maharani molly how would that sound you know and the very idea of ethnic missing or inter-religious missing was an anathema for the British and uh, in the face of all that um, India showed a kind of a dynamic uh, engagement with different religions which I think was very fascinating to keep communal harmony that yes. uh, and it is just that uh, most interestingly what attracts me to this inter-religions is not the alliance part or uh, or uh, keeping a vast state under control it is a way in which uh, 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 uh a subject constitutes constituting of muslims and Hindus can see a corporate monarchy where
0: both of them are the represented, which is a wonderful thing, I guess. Yeah, I think there's a lot that historical Europe could have learned from this. Yeah. And so, as we get towards the end of our episode, can you give us an idea of what you're currently working on? We've heard about the the larger PhD project, but what is it that you're focusing on at the moment in that bigger project
1: okay currently i'm looking at uh, uh, the travels and travels uh, of these becomes a pop actually uh, I, uh, I mentioned before these women were avid travellers and uh, uh, they travel a purpose uh, North and The colonial uh, era was a period where travel to Baluchistan was also a uh, uh, thing in vogue, and you see many such accounts uh, of the Maharani's traveling and how they find freedom in the foreign lands You know they feel free to come out of their power, and no one is staring at them. And back in Bombay at the shipyard, they way, way came again from back in powodah. and that kind of accounts are there. And also, there is a cons of uh, you know um, the camaraderie shared between different uh, uh, royal women in uh, belonged to different uh, royal households. There was this one particular incident that uh, uh, I found interesting, uh, was relating to the last becomes grand doctor and uh, the next heir apparent profile Abdul Sultan. Wrote an interesting memo, uh, which is titled Memoir of a Rebel Princess. And in this, uh, her, her gra- uh, grandmother, the last victim of Papa, was very uh, uh, strict and, uh, and she was a very, very strong Muslim, asking her always to follow Parada. And she was a bit rebellious she wanted to follow some kind of fashion and stuff so when these women uh, when these royal families usually go to hill stations um, to enjoy their uh summer time because it's going to get really hot in central india in summer they go to hill stations like shimla or puti to enjoy themselves and that is where they see all these Royal families together for an evening cup of uh, tea, uh, for a board game, and there they will have a uh, possibility to talk about uh, all of that. And uh, this this thing recorded in her memoir that. Um, Princess Gayatri Devi and her mother actually kind of uh, uh, asked, uh, now gave her advice on how to uh, wear fashionable dress, how we can can do fashionable dressing within the limited framework uh, of what she is allowed to, and that kind of a camaraderie, sartorial uh, reconfiguration, however silly you might uh, we might think it is. It was important for her own, you know, subjectivity, that is to dress in a particular way and to kind of pronounce her identity as such. And that kind of camaraderie was happening in colonial India because of the uh, way empire was Working back then. So what I'm working right now is uh, on the travelogues written by these queens, especially the travelogues on uh, their pilgrimages to Mecca. Uh, two travelogues currently I'm focusing on uh, Nawab Sikandar Begum's travelogue and, travelog and uh, uh, Sultan Jahan becomes uh, travelogue, uh, which was uh, written uh, in two different centuries. Uh, one in 19th century and other in 20th century. The way in which these both becomes um, uh, dif- uh, exposed or express a different kind of devotion to Islamic religion, the intentions behind their travels, the way in which they record uh, their experience of the pilgrimage. For instance, in MSB, Sikhanda becomes narrative. You don't see her talking about the kind of spiritual experience she had. She is constantly. She was written in Urdu, and which means that it was meant to be written by her, meant to be read by her on subjects. not the English it was later translated into English by one uh, of the wives of her political agents. So, it was uh, meant for the Ur, um, subjects uh, of Bhopal State and. Here she is continuously trying to uh, put forward an idea how competent a ruler she is. And she is kind of saying that, okay, Mecca uh, is very unsafe, they don't have good drainage system, they don't have this infrastructure, that infrastructure, and she's constantly comparing the Mecca, the holy city, to her own state where her mother and herself is uh, doing all kinds of work to improve the living condition of her subject. And uh, it is this interesting passage where she herself becomes uh, the representative of the colonial apparatus, the imperial government, as well as uh, she writes uh, uh, in a manner to, uh, to kind of you know uh, assure her subject that I have made a good decision to stick with the British. We are we are far off than a region without the British control. We are we are advancing, and I am a good ruler to you. And it is these kind of you know that I'm exploring right
0: now and it's very interesting. Oh gosh, that sounds that sounds like more in a sense. I I am so excited to kind of see the finished product here. And just this idea of kind of those comparisons between what am I used to and what's happening somewhere else. And these these comparisons that they're making in these travelogues of you know what am I seeing, what am I hearing, what am I learning? Just what a an intimate view into their personal experiences. That's incredible. And I guess that, that brings us to this idea of perspectives and this idea of, kind of how each of us looks at the world around us and how we understand it. And so the question that I've been kind of asking all of my guests so far is how does your own position, your own perspective influence your interest in history and your understanding of history and queenship. And so how does your identity as a, a, a female scholar and an Indian female scholar, how does that kind of dictate or influence how you've approached what you do? That's a very interesting question because uh,
1: first of all, I've landed my uh, uh, position as an Indian scholar. So when I attended conferences and presented papers, one of the first question I was asked uh, from Indian scholars and um, researchers were, why study about queens in an, in an era where they're no longer relevant? Unlike in England or in parts of Europe, or even in parts of Asia, where monarchies still hold at least symbolic or nominal Role. India has figured its relationship with uh, its princely past in the mid-twentieth century. In fact, the discourses that uh, the Princess of India is a vestige from the past it was very much there since the first decade of the twentieth century. So, studying queenship in contemporary India means I have to convince not only really my research peer group, but also laymen who might consider this an unproductive fling with a buried past. For some, it is the democratic turn India took makes the study of queenship irrelevant. But for me, it is the most relevant reason why I should continue to study about the queens, because there has been a concerted effort to erase the political capital the princes had and popularize a narrative of the decadent princes. It was only when you could actually convince uh, the subject that your king is no more relevant or no more uh, good for your progress that they could successfully transition into a democracy uh, in 1947. And it takes concerted effort to erase their legacy. And that's what we find in the uh, oblivion to which becomes a Bhopal is now relegated. So my reason for studying uh, as an Indian scholar is it's, it's present as well. It, it's a democratic political institution that we are following right now as well. Um, as an Indian scholar, uh, I acknowledge the benefits of uh, democratic institution uh, India has right now and its benefits on Indian citizens. But I'm also critically aware of India's royal past. The many subversions orchestrated by its princes, and the lasting legacy conveniently ignored by uh, the present discourses so it is uh, my answer to the first part of the question that is uh, my position as an Indian scholar now comes the next part how do I approach queenship studies as a female scholar my interest in queenship studies is not limited to the past but how women in power continues to be represented in popular discourses and to trace its origin and continuity from its colonial past as i mentioned below before uh, matrilineal succession was uh the thing in color in travel state but when it came to later malayalam movies uh when you actually represent uh, uh queens kings and queens they're represented in the normative heterosexual settings where queen is the wife of the king and not the sister of the king. It is such kind of representation which actually has a colonial backing because colonial, colonial power has a very important say in making that so. So it is that kind of continuities and origin that I want to tra- trace uh, as a female scholar doing a uh, studies in India. And I'm keen to understand how convenient erasure of powerful women from mainstream discourses continues to serve narrow nationalism, patriarchal conceptualization of new Indian women and the discursive possibilities of castigating women from certain communities as backward and need needs reform and rescue. As a female scholar from india i want to unveil a rich history where women exercise considerable power both within and outside royal households problematizing both colonial and nationalist discourses on women's restricted and deplorable position in indian society for long uh, post-colonial studies uh, or studies on gender and coloniality focused only on common women the reform movements, social evils, evil, and the ensuing um, colonial legislation. I think it's high time we focus uh, our attention back on elite uh, mm-hmm. women subjects who, who kind of navigated the colonial era in a way that's very praiseworthy. Uh, we have books like Manu's Filling Ivory Thrones* and Apostolies, and there is a, a recent surge in interest in uh, colonial India Queens, which is very uh, reassuring, but still, there is uh, much more work to be done in that respect. And um, as I mentioned below, uh, we have concentrated up, we have invested so much of our scholarly energy on uh, various coins in colonial India, and I think it's high time we have to also focus on uh, uh, the diplomatic resistance that uh, uh, some of these coins exhibited, successfully exhibited, and um, made their uh, state survive way to 1947 that's still into, into independence. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and just this idea that even in in countries that no longer have monarchy, monarchy is one of the oldest institutions. And so can we really understand kind of 2023 if we don't understand what's come before? And can we really understand kind of the shift away from monarchy if we don't understand why monarchy is so important? And as as you say this this idea that you know we have to understand that and we have to understand that women have power, that that women are, you know, 50% of the population, but are not necessarily 50% of the history. And so how how do we sometimes tease them out, but often it's how do we just say they're already there. We're just not talking about it. And just the the significance of understanding, you know, what are our expectations today and how is that affecting what we expect to see historically? There's just so many points there of how complex history is uh, and how complex gender is.
1: Yes, yes. It, there's more to what we see today, there's more to what we see in history textbooks books today and uh, it is this the layered nature of history that, that's what makes it more interesting, more uh, complex and uh, enlightening as well. Uh,
0: Absolutely, I could not agree more. <laughs> and so... The the final thing I I think we've touched on it and we've alluded to it, but we maybe haven't addressed it head on. Is we've just had an episode uh, talking about Queen Victoria and empire. So looking at that from the British perspective, and so as I say, we've we've touched on it. Can you talk a little bit more about these politics of colonial? Queenship and these interactions of of especially I think the the begums, but of that that relationship with Britain and that relationship with Islam and these this relationship with kind of other big powers <laughs>
1: To begin with, I would say, um Beacons of Gopal's relationship with the colonial power, with the empire, so to speak, was symbiotic. It was very mutual, you know. So uh, the diplomatic relations that they have cultivated all throughout their hundred years reign, uh, was a, a mutual alliance where both the parties benefited in a way that is very, you know, constructive for them. Both of the parties. uh, To explain that a little bit more, it would be the princes were uh, entrusted with the task of endorsing the civilizing mission. The Britain's presence had to be constantly validated by its own uh, colonial subjects, and there were no there were no better candidates than Indian princes to do that. And they endorsed it through. uh, through uh, you know uh, taking up uh, modern torches like uh, as I mentioned in, uh, before, colonial infrastructures and in turn, British guaranteed security for their state and for their dream, and it was the kind of uh, uh, relationship that we find across the state um, since 1858, that uh, since the first war uh, of independence where Queen Victoria was proclaimed as the Empress of India. The crown took over India, and East India Company uh, ceased to exist as uh, the dominant power. So to quote uh, Miles Tyler, I would say, Indian reference reference for the Queen, in extension to the colonial apparatus, might be seen as clientelism or collaboration that is to say, loyalism was a device by which uh, concessions might be extracted from the colonial power. Loyalty to Queen Victoria was not just incidental to 19th century nationalism; a polite, and it was a polite adhesion for the sake of form. It was central to its ideology. So uh, if you actually look at uh, these queens' interaction with the colonial empire, I would say one of the um, biggest improvement happened as Uru's uh, royal women's life was considered. Uh, with regards to coloniality, was uh, there, there, there was, uh, there was suddenly an opening, suddenly a possibility for the women to travel. And uh, travel, uh, the invention, the the coming of ships and all other mediums meant they could travel which was quite uh, not the case before. And they could travel to different continents. And to travel to different continents, as I mentioned be, be, uh, before, meant that uh, not following the Senala spatial constrictions anymore, not following uh, the Parda anymore, and they could explore a life which was very, very different from what they were experiencing in India. and. Um, so they could travel for leisure, for education, and there was this other kind of travel that existed in colonial in India for the princes, which was for petitioning. You have instances of uh, royal women traveling all the way from India, it it um, all the way from India, uh, to the British uh, uh, Buckingham Palace to meet with the king and petition to them that okay, what the colonial officials has done is unfair. You should remedy it. It is this kind of a feeling that these people who are themselves kings, who themselves are aware, since Britain has moved into constitutional monarchy, the king and the queens are themselves aware of the you know restrictions that this kind of a setup is uh, kind of having on them, and it is this kind of uh, uh, imperial citizenship which. Uh, ensured a kind of uh, communication, a conversation with a British counterpart, however superior they might be in protocol, is what uh, makes the interactions of these victims of Popal with our empire a bit more nuanced and interesting. And this ability to have a uh, 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 precedent cited, maybe some rule revoked, uh, by traveling directly to the imperial center and saying that it is your king who says this, so you have to follow that. And um, yes, that is one aspect. And the other aspect uh, which I have already mentioned is uh, the way which princes were, although maybe uh, um, internally quite and satisfied with the ways in which the uh, Britain was controlling them, the colonial officials were controlling them, um, uh, surveying their day-to-day activities, and they, they had to be, you know, reported every now and then. Uh, I think there was this pride uh, which was there uh, among the princes, that they are imperial subjects and they are part of a bigger project that's happening. That that might be the science and technology that they are bringing in, uh, the power that their uh, imperial center is becoming, and if this if this is exactly what you can see in Nawab Sita. becomes uh, a description of uh, how she was uh, was seeing, uh, you know, Mecca, which is a holy place for Muslims, and it shouldn't be disparaged like she did. But she, there was not a what i can see from those uh uh, that narrative is that she is not there as a muslim she was there as an imperial subject uh you know judging uh, uh Mecca on behalf of her colonial masters and saying that if you could actually, if the Sultan of Turkey could actually give me this much amount of money or if you allow me, I can send my uh, son-in-law and my doctor to actually bring in a good governance over this place. And this kind of uh, thinking doesn't come along from uh, the fact that she's a competent ruler. It comes from the fact that she is a competent ruler under the British Paramount also. and the security that it gives her and this is kind of uh the engagements that we can see there even though these engagements might sound a bit yielding and uh, 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 you know psychophantic in nature at times when the colonial powers were uh, too much to bear uh, if i can put it so uh, these becomes had their own way to uh, kind of, you know, react to them. They were not always like uh, uh, accepting whatever the British said. For instance, when it comes to uh, Sultan Jahan Begum, she was a staunch Muslim, as I said before. So when the Khilafat, uh, Khilafat movement came in, which was, uh, uh, she stood with uh, the Ottoman Sultan and not with the British. And it was her understanding that Basically, I'm a Muslim ruler, a Muslim believer, and now, and and my position as a uh, uh, imperial subject is secondary or tertiary. Is what we can see in all the becomes when it comes to certain matters that is crucial to their own existence and belief. Uh, so I think uh, their um, interaction with empire was. Uh, Uh, As complex as their lives, as their uh, layered uh, history.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think you you've said this so perfectly. This idea that it's not just what Britain is telling to its colony at this point; it's that there's this this two way relationship that. There is this movement of, of people, of rulers, and there's this, this movement of ideas and, and goods, but that it's not just from colonizer to colonize. It's, it's a two-way system in a sense. And that the, the begums are saying, you know, we, we don't like this, but we are going to use this to our advantage. And just the, the incredible complexity there. Um, this is, made me want to learn even more um, having had this conversation. So I want to say thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolutely incredible conversation. um, And I hope that listeners have learned even half of what I have picked up. Um, And just your enthusiasm is honestly infectious. (laughs) It's, It's so, so exciting. So thank you so much. Thank you so much dr strong for having
1: me because it was absolute pleasure to talk about the vegans uh, uh, because most of us through scholars, you know we used to write on and on and we never really speak about them in a way which is non-academic so to speak in a conversation manner and it's absolutely exhilarating and uh, uh, would say it was exciting to actually talk about who, uh, who becomes where, and then happy that
0: you enjoyed the conversation. Yes, absolutely. So thank you for joining us and thank you to our listeners um, for being part of this wonderful conversation. So we are heading in our next episode, we are heading to Asia, we are heading up to what is now Japan and Korea to talk about empresses and queen's consort. So thank you again to Annie Joseph for today. Um, And we will have you all back on the episode very soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's
1: Dynasty.